Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, June 7, 2011, and our special guests tonight are Chris Chabri and Daniel Simons. Welcome to both of you. Please feel free to turn your mics on and say hi. Hi. Hi, it's, hi, it's hi, Chris. It's great to be here. This is Dan. Really delighted to have both of you here. I really appreciate your coming. Uh, the Future of Education is sponsored by Learn Central, the project I work on for what is now Blackboard Collaborate, the combination of Wimba and Illuminate. We're also sponsored by My Web 2.0 Labs project. That's web20labs.com, which includes the Classroom 2.0 Global Education Conference, and now, as of today, Teacher 2.0. We did our official announcement. This is a network for teachers to uh, not talk about the use of Web 2.0 in the classroom, but for personal and professional growth. Really should be a lot of fun. There is a live workshop in the Sacramento area if you are in Sacramento. It's free on September 17th. I'm sorry, June 17th. Uh, we also have kind of a sweet uh, contest going on. I've never run a contest, but I have this really nice 23-inch all-in-one Lenovo PC that I've been asked to give away. And so if you go to teacher20.com, you'll see the details on that. Coming up at, edu at the ISTE is our EduBloggerCon all day on conference for those interested in social media and education. That's Saturday, June 25th from 8 to 5. It is free. You do not need to be attending the ISTE show. But it is in the Pennsylvania Convention Center the Saturday before ISTE. Uh, also at ISTE, we have the Bloggers Cafe which, if you haven't been before, is really a welcoming environment for beginners. We hope you'll stop by. Great conversations that go on during the whole conference. And then ISTE Unplugged, if you've ever wanted to present and have not been successful in getting a proposal accepted, or you've just not felt brave enough, or if there's a topic that was newer than when the call for proposals went out, you can go to isteunplugged.com. We have a presentation area, and we stream out live from that. So if you're not going to be attending ISTE, you can also use that schedule to watch live events from the conference. The 2011 Global Education Conference will be the five days of November 14th to 18th. Again, this is a free activity, 24 hours a day, sessions from all over the world. This past year, we had over 400 presentations from 62 countries should be a blast again. That's the Global Education Conference at globaleducationconference.com. Coming up on the future of education, tomorrow Troy Hicks talks to us about his book, Because Digital Writing Matters. Next week, Larry Ferlazzo on his new book, Helping Students Motivate Themselves. Denise Pope from Stanford on her book, Doing School. Uh, most recent addition to this list is Howard Gardner on September 13th from Harvard. Howard was hard to book, but we're delighted to have him on the show. He's a very busy man. Lots, lots more fun coming up. If you've missed one of our shows, they are all recorded in full Illuminate versions and in MP3 um, uh, audio files. Last week, we heard from Cal Newport on his fascinating book, How to Be a High School Superstar. Don't let that title fool you. This book is about more than, uh, it's a deeper book than that, and in fact, it's a book with implications for educators and for anybody in terms of thinking about life and life balance. Clark Aldrich, Monica Hardy, Lisa Nielsen, and Kate Fritkus before that on unschooling, the move, unschooling movement, Jim Bosco on the COSIN work on digital media and participatory learning, Sir Ken Robinson 
on the newest revision of his book, Out of Our Minds. Lots more. Hope, hopefully there's something there that will be of value to you. If this is your first time at Illuminate, it is a participatory environment. Uh, look for the emoticons at the bottom of the, of the participant window, smiley face, a clapping hand. I'm going to recommend that all of you go up to the, the View menu or View in your menus. Look at, click on Layouts and then click on the Wide Layout. It makes it much easier to chat. Um, I'm going to give you a chance now for those of you who are listening live to indicate where you're listening from. Look to the left of the map for a wand. It's a blue stick with a star at the end. Click on that and then click on the map. Let you kind of pinpoint where you are. And then do shout out in the chat. It'll be fun for Chris and Daniel to see where you're listening from, maybe what the time and the temperature are. Well, we're really glad to have you here. Love the Far East contingent. We know the time zone gets tough for Europe at this time. So Chris and Daniel, thanks so much for being on. Uh, this is a little bit of a personal indulgence. This is a, maybe one of my, my most favorite books of the last year uh, in making the tie to education. Will not be as tenuous as it seems, and I'm sure that you have lots to say on that topic, or at least I'm going to try and prompt you in that way. Um, I loved this book. Are you hearing that from other people, especially on this day of the paperback issuing? Uh, this is Chris. Um, I, uh, I've heard that from people, and I'm very gratified uh, to hear it. And I'm especially gratified that you liked it. Daniel, how about you? Yeah, on occasion we hear that. It's always nice to hear when somebody's actually liked the book or found that it's influenced how they how they think or how they teach, for example. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that since reading the book, uh, I've have seen the world through a cognitive lens, and we're gonna talk about that and talk about uh, sort of what, what we can learn from the book um, individually. For for those of you who are here who haven't seen this video, the Invisible Gorilla video, or for those of you who are listening to the recording, I'm going to go ahead and give you a chance to play this relatively short video right now. So I'm going to put it up in the web tour, and um, you'll have to click the play button, but let me tell you which video to watch. So a web browser should come up for you. If it doesn't, for some reason, don't worry. Here's the link in the chat and you can go to that separately in your own web browser. But you're looking for the first video which is the selective attention test. And I'm going to tell you to go ahead and click play now and we'll come back in a minute and a half and uh, we want you to watch this video. So go ahead and click play now. Okay, so I'm hoping that was <laughs> brilliant narration. I'm hoping that was enough time for those of you who were able to watch it. If not, please feel free to go back. Um, so, Chris, uh, this has the feel of being kind of a YouTube gag video, but why is it more important than that? 
well, I never want to say that YouTube gag videos aren't important, but uh, this one actually uh, I think has caught people's attention, so to speak, and, and sort of got inside their heads um, because it t teaches you something that's really deeply true about how your mind works, but that you don't get exposed to every day. So you know, we multitask all the time and we do multiple things at once and we feel as though when we're doing those things, we're actually paying attention to all of them or at least that we're not missing important things in any of those streams, you know, in our text, in our TV, in our homework, in our preparation for, for teaching the next day, all those things we're doing at once, uh, we don't really feel like we're doing them any worse. And this experiment, for those who missed the gorilla, which is about half the people who don't see it, actually brings that home. You replay it and they say, what, I missed that? Um, it really shows uh, what, uh, what we call the illusion of attention, the idea that we think we're paying attention to and noticing much more than we really are. To chime in and add there, one of the things that's interesting about this video as opposed to our daily experience is that when you're watching this video, if I didn't point out, for example, that you missed the gorilla, uh, you'd have no idea that you missed it. And that's how we go through life most of the time. We go through life not realizing that we've missed the obvious because we're not having it pointed out to us. And what this video does is it forces you to confront your intuition that you would automatically notice anything that's around you. Um, it forces you to kind of come to grips with the idea that your intuition about what you'll see and what you won't see is wrong. Right, so it's not just a matter of the fact that we don't, some, that we don't see or notice things, but it's that we, don't, we often don't see that we don't see. That, that we don't think of our brains in such a way as being as fallible as they are. Um, Daniel, what's a, an everyday illusion? What does that phrase mean? Uh, we use the phrase everyday illusion as a way of just describing something that happens in our daily lives. So the idea of an illusion is that you're seeing something about the world differently than it actually is. So in a, in a standard sort of visual illusion that you might see, um, what you see is not exactly what's there on the page. And what we're talking about here in terms of everyday illusions are aspects of our mind that aren't really the way they seem. And we believe them so powerfully, those intuitions are so powerful that they're hard to override even once we know what's actually there, even once we know what our mind is actually doing. So for us with this gorilla video, uh, when we would use it in talks, for example, for, for years, we would hold our breath when giving the presentation and showing the video because we were convinced everybody would notice it. And the reality is it took us a while to override that strong gut feeling that this is so obvious, how could anybody miss it? Um, it's a cognitive illusion, an everyday illusion in the sense that you can't overcome it easily. And it's an everyday illusion in the sense that this happens to all of us. It's, it's not a matter of whether you're smart or dumb or whether you're educated or not. We're all subject to these sorts of limits on our mind and we all tend to have the wrong intuitions about those limits. So Chris, we're going to go through the chapters of the book and we're going to talk about the examples you use. But these illusions or the ways that our brains work, they actually exist for a reason, right? I mean, part of the understanding we come to through the book is that the, these ways of how our brains work are there for a reason. I think that's true. Usually there is a good reason um, for these limitations. So for example, in the case of attention, as we were just talking, uh, you wouldn't want to be a person who notices everything because that would mean you're paying attention to nothing. And the ability to pay attention to something, although it has a cost, 
in terms of not noticing things that you're not paying attention to and especially that aren't expected, it has a huge benefit. You can do a lot more when you're paying attention. Uh, in my cognitive neuroscience classes, I always teach that, uh, that the purpose of attention is that it enhances information processing. We can process information in ways uh, that we can't when we're not paying attention. So there's usually a greater benefit than a cost, and these illusions are sort of the dark side of some of our most powerful cognitive abilities. Uh, and the same is true of, of other areas like uh, you know memory and, and knowledge that we'll get to later on, I'm sure. So one of one of the other books I've read this year that I really enjoyed was Dan Ariely's Predictably Irrational. And from that book, I've, I kind of came away with the sense that the moment that we recognize some of the social pressures or implications, that we have gained some power over them. Um, Daniel, when we understand, as we go through this tonight, as we sort of begin to understand these cognitive impairments or um, challenges, uh, uh, does this improve our lives? Well, I, we hope so. We hope that it's something that by learning about these limitations, we can actually better ourselves. So one, one thing that we often get asked about these sorts of limitations is whether we can get rid of them altogether. So can we get rid of these limits on attention and always notice the unexpected? And as Chris was saying, that wouldn't be a good thing. Uh, we need to be able to focus and ignore distractions so that we can get what we want to do done. Um, what we, excuse me, um, what we want to be able to do is to become aware of those limitations so that we can take steps to avoid the consequences. So if you know you're not going to notice everything around you, you can take steps to limit the costs of that. Um, for example, you might want to throw your cell phone in the back seat when you're driving so that you're not tempted to listen to it or talk on it because that dramatically reduces how much attention you have available to notice your world. Uh, so becoming aware of these limitations can make you safer, for example, or make you more effective in your judgments. So I think that, so that's a good place to move to the first chapter, which is uh, the illusion of attention. And there is a lot of discussion about cell phones. And um, what's the difference, Chris, between um, tracking versus noticing the unexpected? Um, by tracking, um, uh, you mean sort of paying attention to something and following it uh, in your uh, in, in your individual world? Yeah, sorry. I thought I was using your phrasing there. But basically, that there are some things that, that trick us into believing that we're better at what we're doing when we're driving, um, and that we are that we are able to track certain things, but that it's harder to notice the unexpected, right? Uh, yeah, so um, let's say you're talking on a cell phone while you're driving. Um, it's, it's not as though you're completely unable to drive. In fact, you're able to drive okay. You're able to stay on the road. You're able to, uh, you know, you're able to stay at the appropriate speed uh, and so on. It's, you're not completely unable to drive, but the fact that you're able to keep up the task um, under normal conditions uh, reasonably okay doesn't mean that you are also going to notice unexpected things. So the, the penalty from talking on a phone while you're driving, for example, can come you know, in those rare situations when someone cuts you off or stops short in front of you or you know, a kid runs out into the street in front of your car or something like that. Those situations don't happen all the time, 
but when they do, that's when you might pay a huge penalty because you missed something that was unexpected. When just the expected is happening, uh, you know, traffic is moving normally, it's a, uh, you know, wide open road, um, you won't get uh, any, uh, you know, sense that you're not noticing things. So you use a, a, a fairly well-known um, um, police case to identify this, and you use other um, cases of both known and relatively well-known and unknown kinds of examples to help convince us that we actually don't have as the ability to attend to as many things as we think we do. Now, I know this in part because um, in, with the joke in our family is that I have man eyes. I'm wondering if this really actually relates to attention, but I can go to the refrigerator and have a really, really hard time finding something that my wife finds right away. Do, do you have to convince people that we aren't able to attend, uh, Daniel, as much as we think we are? I think so, in, in the sense that we, we, if you look at what people actually do in their daily lives, they don't realize the extent to which attention is limited. So anytime somebody's driving and talking on the phone at the same time, they're implicitly making an assumption about what they'll notice and what they won't. There's this in, um, kind of automatic assumption that whenever something important happens, you're going to notice it. And talking on the phone decreases your chances of noticing it. Texting is much worse. So those of you who are commenting right now on this, on this thread are probably having a harder time following the conversation. Uh, that's something that is you know, pretty clearly documented, but we do it anyway because we think we're able to do it okay. Part of the key is that you know, the vast majority of the time, as Chris was saying, you're going to be able to stay on the road. You're not going to get into an accident. You're not going to have problems. It's a relatively rare event that something unexpected or out of the ordinary happens and that the rules of the road aren't followed. And it's those rare unexpected events that cause problems. But every time you manage to successfully get home without a problem, you tend to inflate your sense that you can do it. Uh, and that's where the real danger comes in. If you look at people with the gorilla video and you ask them, how likely would you be to notice the gorilla? Um, over 90% say, of course I'd notice it, uh, even though only about half actually see it. So that's a pretty strong bias about how much of our world we see. And I think it comes down to an assumption that if something important happens, we will notice it, when in reality we don't. So this obviously has really significant implications for um, these court cases where, where people will say, you know, how could you not have seen this take place? Or the motorcycle rider who says, you looked right at me, how could you turn and not see me? There's a comment in the chat that we need to develop people to be self-aware. Is this something you can actually develop, or is this just something we have to learn to kind of work around? Uh, this is Chris. Um, I don't know who you wanted to answer that, but I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Uh, I think it's possible to develop more self-awareness in the sense of developing a greater understanding of how your own mind works. And that, after all, is part of the goal of you know, teaching people in psychology courses. We're trying to get our students, when we teach psychology, to understand the human mind better, and that means they'll understand their own mind better. Um, so I think that's definitely possible. I think what's going to be really hard is to somehow rewire the mind so that these illusions don't apply. Um, the thing instead is, is to learn about them, to learn about your true strengths and your true weaknesses and how those differ from what you intuitively think you're good and bad at. And then put that knowledge in the back of your mind and use it um, in the future, let's say when you are uh, deciding uh, you know, how to study for you know, an exam if you're a student, let's say. Um, if you know about this stuff and you realize that 
almost nobody can actually multitask, meaning do two things at once without doing them worse than you would be doing them by themselves. Once you realize that you can't do that uh, and shed the illusion that you can, maybe you will do some studying first and then watch TV later or even vice versa. Either one of those would be better than doing them both at the same time. So I think it is possible to teach people um, self-awareness. I sort of wouldn't be trying to teach people psychology, but I didn't think I could, I could make them know a little bit more about the mind. That's a yeah, nice. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, I was just going to say, one of the few illusions in our book that to some extent you might be able to help overcome is what we call the illusion of knowledge. And this is the tendency to assume that we understand things in a much deeper way than we actually do. And any of you who are teachers have experienced this, that students will have read through the materials and it will all seem familiar to them, but they won't actually understand it at all. And when they come to the exam, suddenly they realize they have no understanding. They can't generate it because they just read over it and over it and became familiar with it. Um, the easiest thing you can do to, to make sure you know the material is to quiz yourself, to test yourself. What the illusion of knowledge reveals is how rarely we spontaneously do that. So, for example, if I asked you, do you know how a toilet works? Um, most people would say, well, yeah, I know how a toilet works. All you have to do is ask yourself one diagnostic question, like, why does the bowl refill after you flush? Um, and most people won't be able to answer that, and they'll realize really quickly they have no idea. Or maybe you want to try a do-it-yourself project at home, and you want to repair your kitchen sink. So you might dive right in, and, and suddenly you realize you don't really know what you're doing. It takes three times longer. You make a mess of things. It's because you don't ask yourself, do I know what each of these pipes does, for example. So it's something that's really central to, to learning and something that students, at least in my experience, don't seem to get at the college level, is how to test yourself and make sure you understand what you think so you This understand. is really a nice segue because you're, you're going to, we're going to tie some threads here together. So one of which is that uh, as we increasingly hear people say, you don't need to know things because it's on the internet. This will be sort of an interesting place for us to, to discuss that. And, and also we've talked about on the show before the study at Stanford where those who thought they were the best multitaskers actually turned out to be the worst. So let's, let's steer this just for a moment into this educational question. And Chris, um, uh, how, how would you approach this question of now that we have access to everything on the internet, uh, we don't necessarily need to be learning as much um, by memorization that we did before? Uh. I am glad you brought that up because uh, I think it's really important. There's a, I think there's a confusion in uh, people's minds, um, in some people's minds at least. Uh, I, one of the things I study that's not really in the book, but uh, is collective intelligence, and that's the idea that you know people, when they're paired up with other people, can collectively be smarter than uh, individuals are by themselves. Well, people paired up with computers or people paired up with the internet collectively um, can be very smart, um, but uh, that doesn't that doesn't mean that uh, we all you know all the time know exactly you know where the knowledge is how to retrieve it how to use it um, it's it's I think it's kind of a fantasy to to think that having it in the internet is the same as having it in your head in fact the more you know the more actual knowledge you have the better you're going to be at discovering new knowledge and finding you know what you don't already know and, and finding the things you're looking for. Uh, it's, I, I don't see any reason to sort of decrease the store of knowledge in, in my head because there's more knowledge you know, at my fingertips now. If anything, the more I have in my head, then the more I can, I can, I can find out. It makes the whole system uh, you know, have uh, greater capabilities um, than that. So uh, I, now I'm really 
kind of my brain is firing uh, in many different directions because part of what I, I got from the book was that we tend to see things that relate to understandings that we already have. And so this gives us a sort of a good framework for um, remembering the importance of context and really understanding other material in, in order to understand new material. So Daniel, is that fair as you're thinking about college students? Is this something we should be thinking a lot about? That's where I completely follow the question, Steve. Uh, so it was the question about uh, understanding how their expectations coming into the classroom differ from what the professor or teacher is expecting? Well, I probably didn't, I wasn't clear about it, but I'll, let, me, let me sort of uh, think through this here. What I'm thinking is that uh, we often, that our perceptions are um, guided or determined by our previous experiences. And so our ability to absorb knowledge and put it into context is largely going to be, and, and to see things in it is going to be a function of how much we already know or ways that we've been thinking about something. And so that would be an argument for rigorous um, education, sort of non-silver bullet. You know, it's not going to be easy because of the web's there. And it, does that fit with your perceptions that we sometimes are using the web as kind of a crutch, believing that it can replace true learning, but that your studies would show that the more you have uh, previous experience and the more you have an ability to put something into context, the more likely it is you'll be able to see it in a more nuanced way. I think that's louder part is absolutely true. That you know, the more you know, the more perspective you have, the more context you have in order to integrate new information. Um, th there are a couple of other elements to what you were saying that I'd like to touch on. I'm not sure if it'll completely answer your question, but let me give it a shot. One aspect was that the more context you have, um, the better able you are to integrate new information. And that's true, but it actually at times can present a problem for teachers. So there's the problem of the curse of knowledge. Um, if you have knowledge, you see the world differently than somebody who doesn't have that knowledge. You have different expectations, different beliefs. And the result of that is unless you're able to put yourself in the perspective who, of somebody who lacks your knowledge, it makes it really hard to see things from their view. That, that's why I've had this experience on occasion where a student will ask a question in a class. The teacher will have absolutely no idea what the student's talking about because they're coming from a completely different knowledge base. But every other student in the class knows exactly what the student's question was. And it's because of this problem of the curse of knowledge. You have too much information. So I don't think it's just limited to the internet. Again, relying on the internet as a crutch that leads to this sort of uh, lack of deep understanding. But I do think the internet in some ways can cause problems for learning. Um, one of the things that Chris and I have talked about is, again, the illusion of knowledge. If you get surface familiarity, so if you kind of scan something really quickly and you see a headline, you'll come away thinking you actually understand it because we don't tend to test our knowledge. So I think that's one of the dangers of you know, following a Twitter feed, for example, is that you get all these headlines and you feel like you actually have deep knowledge of the material, but really what you have is surface familiarity and you don't bother to check that knowledge. So I think there can be a danger for students if they tend to rely on you know, the web for information without actually seeing whether they can generate that information themselves as opposed to just having it be familiar when they look at it again. So I think that's really helpful and interesting. Uh, and, I, and I hear this with some regularity, which is um, why should students have to learn something if it's on the web? And I think this presents 
sort of a thoughtful rebuttal to just uh, the wholesale turning over of our information uh, to the web. Um, there's so much more in the book than we're going to have time for, so I'm going to pick and choose here a little. Um, your chapter on memory was really interesting to me, in part because um, you make a distinction between our ability to understand that we do lose memory of everyday events, but we we owe, we believe more than is realistic in um, memories of I think that you call flashbulb memories, especially something like 9/11. So, Chris, can I ask you to describe sort of quickly how we get tricked in that way? Uh, sure, and, and uh, we call them flashbulb memories because uh, in a famous paper, Roger Brown and James Kulik called them flashbulb memories a long time ago, so I don't want to take credit for that, uh, for, for that coinage. The idea of flashbulb memories was that when uh, emotionally significant, uh, important, often public events happen, um, you, it's as though like a flashbulb goes off and you burn the image, you burn the memory into your, into your mind at that moment. So for example, 9-11. Um, uh, probably everyone, or a lot of people listening here, at least those who were in the U.S. at the time, um, have a vivid memory of where they were and what they were doing when they heard about the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Uh, and in the book, actually, Dan talks about his memory of 9-11, uh, and uh, a lot of people you know, have these flashbulb memories. The problem is that flashbulb memories turn out to be just as subject to distortion and change over time as ordinary memories. Uh, are. We just don't understand that. We have this illusion of memory which convinces us that our memories, especially those kinds of memories for emotionally significant things, that those kinds of memories are much more accurate um, and uh, persistent and objective than they really are. So when we give those recollections later, we're 100% convinced that that's exactly the way it happened to us. People have done clever experiments where years later they've had people give their memories of a, an emotionally salient event like the explosion of the Challenger and then handed them what they wrote the day after, you know, three years earlier and said, well, here's in your own writing what, uh, what happened to you that day and people will look at them and sometimes say, well, I, that looks like my handwriting but I don't remember that at all. I still remember it the way I just described it to you. Um, so relying on sort of like your confidence and your introspective sense of the accuracy of your memories can be, can be a dangerous thing. So knowing again that we have limited time here, I'm going to go through some of these other examples that you've given and I want to relate them directly to issues that I think we face in education and get your response. So uh, you talk a lot about confidence and how uh, confidence if we know somebody can tell us a lot about how they actually feel about something. But then when we don't know people and we don't know sort of their normal natural confidence level, we are often fooled by high confidence levels where there isn't actually capability behind it. Um, and is this where you talk about, uh, Daniel, is this where you talk about unskilled and unaware of it? Can you remind me? So that, that's a, an effect that was really first documented systematically by Justin Kruger and David Dunning. Um, and another, another name for it is the double curse of incompetence. So it turns out that we're all somewhat overconfident in our knowledge and our memory and how much we're going to notice and how much we're going to keep track of and, and remember. Um, but a particular group of people tends to be the most overconfident in their abilities, and it's the people who have the least ability, the least skill. So the people who are worst at something tend to be the most overconfident. So it's a double curse of incompetent because of incompetent because people who are bad at something, well, first of all, they're incompetent, so they're not very good at it, so that's a problem. 
but they also don't realize how incompetent they are, so they think they're much better than they actually are. Um, and this applies in a, in a wide range of contexts. It applies from everything to everything from sensitive humor to reasoning ability to grammar. Um, pretty much every topic area that's been tested, every skill that's been tested, uh, the worse you are at it, the more overconfident you tend to be. So it, it can be a real problem. So I know this is going to be a little bit of a leap, but I want to tie that unskilled and unaware of it in the confidence piece. Uh, to the uh, sort of the bicycle, uh, believing we have more uh, knowledge or understanding than we really do, um, to your uh, um, look at causes and our sense of understanding of cause. And I want to propose, and especially I think for the audience here, that um, one of the things that we keep seeing in education is people uh, come in, whether it's um, financially successful business people or politicians, and look at education and fairly quickly draw conclusions about what policy should be and what's right or wrong. And it felt to me as though many of the illusions here actually apply. So um, we don't have to go too far down that road. But uh, Daniel, your mic is still on, so I'll ask you. Okay. Um, is this sort of a common phenomenon that, that people will come in believing they know much more about a topic or an idea, kind of ignore the richer, nuanced history and thoughtful arguments, and believe that they can fix something? Well, I think that's just a general trait that a lot of us have in many contexts. It's not you know, specific to education, but I think that's a general trend for most people that feel like when you first encounter something, that's when you feel like you can com completely come in and solve the problem right away. It's, it's why you jump into fixing your sink when you know nothing about plumbing. Um, it's only after you have a little bit of knowledge do you realize what you don't know. So I, I agree. I think that's, that is a general problem whenever you're promoting a new policy. If the person who's doing it doesn't actually know in a really detailed way what the limits of their own knowledge are, that's when they're going to be most overconfident. So Chris, I'll switch back to you now. Uh, in the understanding or knowledge chapter, uh, you talk a lot about um, data masquerading as understanding and how actually sometimes with less data people make better decisions. Um, uh, can you think of ways that that might apply um, to trying to measure something like education, which is hard to measure but which uh, you can get data points? Is, could we say that that's maybe a, a cognitive temptation to use data where there isn't fuller understanding? Uh, I think that's always a possibility. I have to say I don't know enough about, uh, you know, sort of educational measurement and some of those topics to, you know, to, to, give, a, um, to give a strong opinion. I'm, I'm trying to be mindful of my own illusions of knowledge here and not go out on a limb um, when I might be cut off. But I do think that it's, it's definitely possible to seize on any kind of data that you have and really pay more attention to it than it deserves. A great example from my own experience is student evaluations of teachers. Uh, you know, when uh, college professors get uh, evaluated, especially at colleges that place emphasis on teaching ability, uh, rightly so, they, uh, you know, look to evaluate professors for tenure and, and reappointment and so on based on how well they teach. But the only really solid numerical data on how well they teach is those bubbles that the students check off at the end of the at the end of the semester, at the end of the course. And it's easy to say, well, look, I've got all this data. That's what I'm going to analyze and to not then combine any other kinds of information because when you have easy data available to you, you'll sort of take it as an answer to the question, uh, even if it's not necessarily the best answer to the question of teaching quality or teaching ability.
Okay, again, knowing that there's limited time and, and, and that there's much more in the book that I hope those of you who haven't read it will now be tempted to kind of drill down on. Um, for me, the chapter on cause, which included the sort of heartbreaking measles story and then the connection with autism, uh, I read this just before uh, Dr. Wakefield was accused of fraud. So I haven't followed that story too closely, but it felt very much to me like your, uh, the book had given me a lot of context within which to, to watch it as it began to unfold. Um, uh, do you want to kind of briefly describe w w the, the cognitive errors we make there with cause? And, and I'll pass this over to Daniel. So the illusion of cause is a tendency we all have to quickly infer whatever two things could be related and one comes right before the other, we tend to assume that the first thing caused the second thing, especially if the second thing is crying out for an explanation. Um, so the, the illusion of cause is our tendency to, to do this, and we do it promiscuously. Our, our mind is just intending to look at patterns and try and find what caused the outcome. So the example we talk about quite a bit in, in the book, as you alluded to, is the idea that vaccines in some way cause autism. Well, if you think about how this sort of a belief comes about, um, you have a child who at age two or three uh, is diagnosed with autism and one of the key indicators of that is they aren't really engaged in social interaction in the way that other kids tend to be. Well, that doesn't get, tend to get noticed until the kid starts interacting with other kids, which tends to be closer to age three than to age one and a half or two. So you get this diagnosis of your kid who previously seemed completely normal. And when you get that diagnosis, the first thing you're going to do is look to see was there something that triggered this? Was there some cause? And it's very easy to look back just a little bit a while ago and say, oh, wait a second, they got this shot. It's got all sorts of weird stuff in it. I don't quite understand it. But it's a realistic thing to infer that one caused the other, and it's a very natural thing to do. Um, in some ways, it's a defensive thing to do. It's something that we're built to do because it might have protected us in a much earlier stage of our evolutionary history. So if you imagine, for example, that you had a friend who ate a berries from a plant that had white spots on it and got really sick. The first thing you're going to do is assume that those berries caused your friend to get sick. And that's a reasonable thing to do. You're not going to eat those berries. But the logic of the situation doesn't tell you that the berries caused him to get sick. It, in order to really show that, you'd have to randomly assign 100 of your friends to eat the berries and 100 of your friends to eat some other control berries and see whether the rates of illness differed. Um, it could have been that your friend got sick not because of the berries, but he was already getting sick and it had nothing to do with it. Or it could have been that the berries actually helped him a little bit. He was going to be really sick if he hadn't eaten them. Um, the problem is that we tend to infer cause from those sorts of anecdotal stories, from those uh, cases, individual cases, and that's where we can go wrong. Now we have the capability of compiling huge databases and sets of information and doing the systematic controlled studies. And we can see that the you know, standard MMR vaccine isn't related to autism. We can do that in the databases, but that's not how we reason. We reason based on those individual stories. So the final chapter is uh, on potential. And this clearly has you know, direct application to education. And you tell the story of the Mozart effect, uh, baby Einstein, and then being purchased by Disney. Um, we've had uh, several people come on the show uh, Dan Quell talking about the talent code, David Schenk, the genius in all of us. And we've looked at a lot at you know, uh, deliberate practice and what it really takes to be good. Um, it is, part, is one of the cognitive traps or temptations for us 
to look for a silver bullet which will um, solve uh, something easily. And I'm going to give this to you, Chris. Yeah, that, the illusion of potential is the mistaken belief that the potential that we have uh, inside of us to learn and acquire new abilities and skills and so on is easily unlocked with simple measures like you know listening to Mozart's music for ten for ten minutes a day or playing you know fun video games that are going to make us smarter uh, or you know sit the baby down in front of a video or something like that um, you know this is a great I think this is a great message for education because there is a way to unlock our potential and make ourselves smarter and acquire new skills it's called education and learning and studying and practicing and uh, you know and, and all of that it's 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 been known for a while and it, you know oddly enough it still works um, I have to say that it, it, you mentioned um, the, the, the talent code and and Dan uh, coil and, and so on um, I think those guys have gone a little bit too far in, in the other direction by assuming or trying to prove that there's no such thing as talent or um, or individual differences between people in different skills or intelligence and, and so on. Um, those things, you know, certainly exist, and it's still actually a fairly open question as to whether uh, you know there's something about a person's uh, makeup that would let me predict that they're going to have an easier time learning to be a, a concert pianist than a chess player or vice versa. Um, so they've gone a little bit too far the other direction, but it's definitely true that the way to uh, access potential is I'm studying hard work, not uh, not quick fixes. Strangely, we seem to keep on falling for these quick fixes, and that's what tells us that there's this illusion of the easily unlocked potential. Daniel, in the financial crisis, I think we saw a lot of these um, pieces kind of come together, and I know that um, uh, this is something that's addressed in the book and that and I've thought quite a bit about. Um, and, and one specifically is the tie to uh, believing that a compensation will actually uh, lead to people making good choices. And I, I'm not sure that's actually in the book, but I'm curious, um, between the time that you've published the book for the, the hardcover edition and now this new one has come out, um, has there been an increased sense on your part of understanding of what's taken place with the financial crisis? Um, and would you like to say anything about that? Well, I, mean, I think there is going to be endless analysis of the financial crisis. I think one of the real challenges here is that after the fact, and whenever you're trying to analyze a single historical event, um, we have a tendency to kind of look back for causes and explain them as if we know exactly what's happened. But really, a historical event is an anecdote. We don't really know if what was done led to the outcome. We don't really know if the stimulus package that was passed when, when Obama first got into office had any impact or not. All we know is that the situation at time two now is somewhat different than the situation was at time one. We have really no way of knowing whether what was done made any difference or whether it was just just happenstance. Um, you mentioned compensation. I think that's one of the interesting cases of exactly this problem, that in a lot of cases, the judgment about whether or not somebody has succeeded and whether or not what they've done was effective is based on the current state of how that company is. So a CEO is praised if their company happens to be doing well. But a lot of the time, the company might have been doing well due to factors that had nothing to do with what the CEO was doing. Uh, and when a company fails, oftentimes it's not had anything to do with what the CEO was doing. Um, so I think that's one of the real dangers is that we tend to kind of promisc promiscuously assign cause and assign responsibility when we really don't have a good test of whether or not that, fact, that method led to the success. Um, it's, it's one of the big dangers of the case study approach in, in business in that 
if you're analyzing a case, um, you're dealing with an anecdote. You're not dealing with a randomly assigned controlled experiment where you can actually look at the causal relationships. And one of the big dangers in analyzing cases like the financial crisis is that we tend to look at what's happened after the fact, and much like the case of vaccines and autism, we try and look for a cause. So we find a company that succeeded and look at what they did over the past uh, you know, years, and we just tend to assume that what they did is what led to their success when really it could have been many other factors as well. So on the, on the jacket of the book it says, reading this book will make you less sure of yourself. Um, so when we become less sure of ourselves, when we, when we do have some sense of humility about our, uh, the cognitive traps that our, that our minds can fall into, um, how do we move forward? How do we actually uh, get things done in life knowing that oftentimes uh, those who are unaware of these um, sort of uh, cognitive patterns um, may sort of push past us without realizing that we're being kind of thoughtful about thinking about what's really taking place. Daniel? Thank you, Chris. So, um, you know, I think the, the general idea is that by being aware of these things, if you better know your limits, and you better know what these sort of limits on cognition that we all have, then you can take steps to bypass the risks and bypass the problems. So I, I think it, being a little more humble in what you don't know, for example, causes you to test your knowledge and, and look forward to it. But I missed, I missed the, the last part of your question, I'm afraid. Oh, that's okay. I'm just curious about, uh, it feels as though in many ways the world kind of favors those who um, aren't as aware of those limitations and move forward in sort of brash ways. And I'm not picking on anybody here, but let's say Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, do we some, do we have to accept that just sometimes that awareness will not necessarily lead us to um, the kind of success that others would define, but that uh, hopefully over the long run we're making better, more thoughtful decisions? Yeah, I think that's uh, true. So Chris, you want to take that or should I? Yeah, I, 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 I wanted to jump in. If, if that's if that's okay, um, this is a great this this is a great question. Um, first of all, uh, you know, for, for every Donald Trump, and it's arguable how successful he actually is, and and so on. You know, he's been bankrupt and whatnot. But for every Donald Trump or every high-paid Wall Street executive, there are lots of people you've never heard of who took risks and failed and are out of the business. You know, probably a lot more than the ones we've heard of, but. Uh, we, fat, we latch on to the ones we've heard about, um, and we look at those you know, as examples and assume that they illustrate a larger trend, when in fact they probably don't. Um, it's survivorship bias. We don't hear about all the risk takers who took too many risks because they're no longer in the news and they're no longer famous. Uh, so uh, I think the, the, the thing to realize when thinking about your limitations and your illusions uh, and so on is, is to realize that um, you, know, you will be making better decisions people who seem to be pushing past you and seem to be making better decisions uh, yet are ignorant of these things um, are probably just getting lucky. And, uh, you know, in the long run, their luck is going to run out. Yeah, it was very easy. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to add one thing to that, which is that if you look at a lot of the self-help industry, it's really focused on boosting self-confidence. And there is a logic to that, which is that people tend to be over-reliant on confidence as, a, as an indicator of skill. So if you are good at blustering, and especially if you're not going to see the same people over and over again, if you're good at presenting yourself in a really confident way, people are going to assume you know more than you actually do. 
which can, in some cases, lead you to be more successful, to lead you to get promoted farther ahead. So you know, there, aren't, there aren't too many non-confident politicians, for example. Um, and it's not necessarily because they actually know anything or have a lot of skill. Um, it's confidence actually does help in those sorts of cases. So being completely self-aware so that you're not necessarily overconfident doesn't always help you, but it, it does let you know that you're doing what you're able to do and what you know you can do. So have we evolved uh, cultural behaviors that take into account um, these uh, cognitive um, issues? Are, are there certain things that you can point to in our culture where you would say, we've done a good job, maybe not um, with full understanding, but just through the process of, uh, of accumulating cultural tactics, um, like within law, are there certain ways in which we operate as a society that can help us to see that we actually do recognize this at some level? Uh, this is Chris. Um, it's a really good question. I haven't tried to actually think of it directly in that way, but you, you can look at some cultural practices like uh, you know, the adversarial process in a trial. Uh, you know, there seems to be some recognition in that process that uh, you know, it's difficult to figure out the truth. Um, and we need some you know, special procedures to allow for fairness in that, because if we just let uh, people you know, uh, go off in a disorganized way, then you'd have uh, you know, all kinds of bad social processes, you know, mob behavior and, and whatnot. So there, there's, an example, you know, there's an example of one right there. The political process is another um, of uh, you know, combining individual um, opinions and beliefs to come to, uh, to, come to better decisions. Um, there are some uh, technological solutions that we tend to develop to help us overcome these limitations. I mean, writing is a great example, overcoming limitation on memory. Or to take something sort of more trivial, but, but also useful, um, the, the cars on the back, the cameras on the back of cars that help you see what you're backing up into. Um, an expensive technological solution, but does sort of solve a cognitive limitation um, and a limitation of the design of the entire system, the blind spot in the back. Um, I think what we need to do is think more about how our minds really work and develop more solutions like that, whether they're cultural practices, social rules, or technological innovations. That's a way to try to help us all overcome everyday illusions um, without just relying on you know, each individual to uh, solve them for, them for him or herself. Daniel, are there public policy initiatives that you've seen that you feel do a really good job of addressing in a healthy way um, these cognitive issues? I'm not sure about public policy issues, uh, initiatives, but I do think in a lot of ways culture evolves to deal with the sort of limitations that we have. Right? So the, the whole road system is premised on some of the limitations we have. So we have clear indicators of when you should stop and when you should go because we know we can't keep track of all of the cars coming from different directions. Um, and you know, in, in countries where there isn't a whole lot of clear road marking and clear rules and people don't follow them, you often get mayhem. Um, so I think part of the way that the cultural cha culture changes is to try and deal with some of these limitations, the, especially the ones for which we're aware. So we know that when you're backing up, you can't see behind you very well. So that's an easy one to, to spot and fix. But there are a lot of other things that we don't realize are limits. And those are not going to be changed until people realize their limits. Um, so I, I think I, I don't see a whole lot of uh, public policy initiatives to deal with these sorts of things. One example of, of one that's been an attempt is that there are a lot of laws now in states to ban the use of handheld phones, which is a start because handheld phones are distracting. They take away attention, make you less likely to notice things around you. But 
the problem is that people don't really understand why it is that we're impaired when we're talking on a phone, and it doesn't have anything to do with holding the phone in your hand. It has to do with the conversation or, or with the cell phone. And the result is that if you look at the research, um, hands-free phones are just as bad as handheld ones for the conversation. The only benefit of banning handheld ones is that you can't text, which is much, much worse than even talking on the phone. But what that, what that means is that the legislation that's being passed is based partly on the right idea that we really can't do this at once, and finally we're getting enough evidence that people are realizing, eh, maybe most of us can't do this. But it's still based on an illusion because we're not really questioning why it is that we have that limitation. And if we did, and you, the goal were to ban cell phones, you should be banning all of them, not just the handheld ones. Whether or not the regulation is the way to get around the problem, I don't know. But uh, it's at least one attempt uh, to kind of countermand some of these limitations. Chris, was there anything you learned between the two editions of the book? I've got the original hardcover. Was there anything you made changes to? Uh, we really only made a few, um, you know, small editorial changes here and there, mostly, to, almost entirely to correct uh, a few errors that people were nice enough to point out to us. Um, so, uh, you know, while we would love you to buy a copy of the paperback, uh, you won't really learn anything different. However, there, there were some things that, that we did learn, and I, just briefly speaking for myself, um, since I wrote the book, not only have we heard uh, examples from people of things that happened to them, which uh, which um, you know illustrate these illusions, but I've started to see them more and more in my own life. And when I, whenever I read the news, um, I've been following the Bernie Madoff story, you know, for the past couple of years. And uh, you know, there's a, every day that that's in the news, I'm reminded of how many everyday illusions are involved in that case. Uh, people believe that Bernie Madoff could time the stock market perfectly because he had this masterful intuition, which is total nonsense, but it's a prevalent belief that gut feelings can, can work that well. Um, he was able to snooker so many people because he mastered the illusion of confidence. Um, he was able to seem like he was so smooth and knowledgeable and skilled that the people were taken in. Um, you can actually understand a lot of everyday events and a lot of what's going on in the news today and so on through this, through this lens, sort of, of these everyday illusions. It, it does give you and it's given me a different way of looking at the world. I think we've got time for uh, one more question. Uh, Deb asked in the chat, um, what can you do if you see the gorilla and others don't? Is there a strategy to show the gorilla? Uh, my understanding is that you haven't really found any kind of a correlation between those who see the gorilla and those who don't. Would you like to comment on that, Daniel? This is one of the great questions. Is, are there some people who are noticers and other people who are missers um, who would consistently miss the gorilla and other people who would consistently see it? And the short answer seems to be, no, there really aren't people who consistently notice it all the time and people who consistently miss it all the time. Um, but it's a really hard thing to study because when you want to study individual differences, you want to be able to measure the same thing a bunch of times to see whether they're reliable, see whether it occurs over and over and over again. But with the gorilla video, of course, you can only show it to people once. And once they know to look for a gorilla, the game's up. They're, they're looking for gorillas after that. Um, so it really becomes a challenge to find out if there are individual differences. Um, there are a couple of studies suggesting that there might be some slight individual differences under really constrained conditions between who notices and who doesn't. But I think the bigger factors are going to be how focused people are, how much they're trying to do that focusing, and that's going to affect whether or not they notice. The more intently you're trying to focus, the less likely you are to notice it. The more demanding, the more hard you find focusing, the less likely you are to notice. But as for individual differences, I think it's a great question. It's a really hard one to study. So I don't think there's really clear evidence yet. The only evidence we do have is that people who are really good at tracking 
and counting passes, for example, aren't any more likely to notice. Um, and you'd think maybe they would be, but noticing things that are unexpected is hard. And the problem comes down to we're only able to take in a tiny part of our visual world, and there's a lot more information than we can possibly take in at any one moment. So even if you're slightly better at focusing on slightly more stuff, there's so much more stuff that you're not paying attention to that noticing that unexpected thing is just unlikely for all of us. So uh, I'm going to clap for both of you. I really appreciate your being here tonight. Um, we end on time as a courtesy to you, but, uh, and knowing that uh, you've devoted a full hour, I really appreciate it. This is a book I loved again. Um, I'm, I, I read it months ago and preparing for today. I wanted to reread the whole thing. Uh, the Invisible Gorilla out today in paperback. Um, a terrific book. I want to thank you both for coming tonight and talking about it. Uh, coming up tomorrow, Troy, or, uh, Thursday, Troy Hicks on Because Digital Writing Matters. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, and as you can see, uh, Daniel did put up the link to their website, theinvisiblegorilla.com. And there are other videos there. Even if you have seen the gorilla, you can uh, look for the next video after that. Uh, and a good long talk that I think Chris gave at Google, which talks a, a fair amount about the Bernie Madoff um, scandal and, and other things. Um, contact information is at theinvisiblegorilla.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Take care. <laughs>